favorite character in the Bible is Peter. Uh, I think it's because we can relate to him so well. Peter gave the wrong answer sometimes. Peter made mistakes sometimes. And that gives us a little more comfort than we see some of these giants of the faith that just seem to be so close to perfect. I think one of the things that attracts me to Peter is we see the evolution of Peter. We see Peter growing throughout the New Testament. And one of the most intriguing things I think about Peter is that you can go to see life events recorded in the Gospels and see how those events inform his teachings in the epistles in 1st and 2nd Peter. So you can see how things that he experienced made an impact on him and, and how it changed him. And we, we're going to see one of those such passages in 1st Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. As we continue this week in looking at um, the doctrines of the end times, as you make your way to 1st Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, I just want to remind you, really we only have kind of two doctrinal points in our doctrinal statement that point significantly to the end times. The first one is in the doctrine of the resurrection, and in that point in our doctrinal statement, it describes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then it concludes, it says, consequently, at the return of Christ, we believe in the bodily resurrection of those who believe in Him. And then we have a doctrinal statement, that's, uh, or a point in the doctrinal statement, it's called the return of Christ. And it says, we believe in that blessed hope, the personal, premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. His return has vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. And notice what those two doctrinal points leave out. Notice what they don't say. There, there is a certain amount of ambiguity in that on what we're not sure of. It doesn't really say anything about the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation. Um, and there's other aspects that are left out. And the reason we do that is because good, godly, obedient, Bible-informed, spirit-led people can come to different conclusions on the exact nature of what the, how the end times is going to shake out. Um, I'm reminded of that last chapter in Daniel. Daniel has a lot of prophecy about the end times, but it concludes and it says, Jesus says, seal up the words of this book, and they're not going to be known until the end is here. And so that, to me, that tells me that it's going to make more sense the closer we get to that relevant time. In fact, in uh, the first chapter in Revelation, it starts with this statement. About three or four verses in, three verses in, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So you're blessed if you read it, you uh, understand it, you obey it. It says, for the time is near. So the closer we get, the more we'll understand and he says, for the time is near, and that's exactly what Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. It reads, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So Peter starts this by saying, the end of all things is at hand. And because the end of all things is at hand, and by, when he says the end of all things is at hand, at hand, he means it's, it's very near. 
Uh, I don't know if you, your house is this summer, but our house seems to have an inordinate amount of flies this season for some reason. And so we have a lot of fly squatters sitting around the house, and the fly squatters are close at hand. So if a fly is bugging me, his end is near because the fly squatter is very close by. I can grab it at a moment's notice. And, and Peter is saying the end of all things is at hand. At, at a moment's notice. There's nothing major that needs to happen between now and the end. There's other places in Scripture that affirm this. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Speaking about what we can learn from the Old Testament, Paul says these things happened to them as, exa uh, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul recognized we're coming to the end. In 1 John 2.18, John says, children, it is the last hour. Uh, my dad just told me last night, he had really trouble sleeping last night. If ever you had trouble sleeping, you know what it's like to get to the last hour, don't you? you got to work nine or ten hours the next day, and you're down to the last hour of sleep, and like, oh, all I have is one hour left. In the scheme of all things, John says, we're down to the last hour. We're about there. And in, in Peter's mind... Because the end of all things is at hand, he says, therefore, so he identifies three correlating subject matters that in his mind have direct relationship to the end of all things. So the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the three subject matters that to him are directly correlated to the end of all things, the subject of how you behave, the subject of how you think, and the subject of how you pray. How you behave, how you think, and how you pray. He says, they're never more important than right now because the end of all things is at hand. And th those three subject matters are not distinct. They are, they're quite amalgamated. Right? How you think determines how you behave. In some respects, how you behave determines how you think. Sometimes we're stronger in one than in the other. But how you pray affects how you think and how you behave. And how you think and how you behave can determine how you pray as well. We can't break this down and talk about them one at a time because they're all intertwined. And I wonder, what, what could have ingrained this so deeply in Peter's psyche. He's talking about here in verse 7, the end of all things and how important prayer is. Uh, he talks about sober-mindedness again in, in chapter 5 and verse 8 where he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Note also, Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So I wonder, I wonder what could have, what event could have made this so critical in Peter's mind that when the end is near, you need to be watchful and alert in prayer and self-control and in sober-mindedness. A pivotal event, perhaps, with deep emotional resonance. Some event that had pro 
profound consequences that burned into his soul, etched into his spirit, forever indelibly leaving its mark on the person, Peter. Let's cast our minds back to the Garden of Gethsemane. I think there's a good chance this event in Matthew chapter 26, and starting in verse 36, had an impact on Peter that caused him to call believers who were faced with the end of all things to be self-controlled, sober-minded, and prayerful. Let's turn back to Matthew 26, if you will. We're all familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's replay this scene in our minds. Matthew 26. Starting in verse 36. This is just after the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is just after, you can see the heading there, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Of course, Peter didn't believe it. He said, everyone will fall away, but I won't. Not me. And then we get to verse 36. It says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And this is some ominous foreshadowing here. Gethsemane. The Hebrew word Gethsemane, it means the olive press. The olive press was a great cylindrical stone that would be rolled over olives, and it would go round and round repeatedly around the stone basin, and the olives would get pressed, and then the stone would come around again and it'd get pressed again, then the stone would come around, and it would continually get pressed until all the oil was drained into a jar, until eventually there was just pulp left and no oil left in the olive. And here in this olive press of sorts, Jesus himself was, was pressed spiritually. Here Jesus would be laid down and pressed with the weight of the upcoming cross, pressed with the weight of the sins of the world, pressed with the weight of feeling contrary to the Father, here he would be pressed until he sweat drops of blood. And all this is foreshadowed when it says they came to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And take him, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So he took his inner circle with him, Peter, James, and John. Notice verse 38. He says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even until death. Some of you have felt that way before. Sorrow unto death. And, and Satan tells you something's wrong with you and it's wicked. And, and just know, Jesus felt the same way. Jesus knows what it's like to feel sorrowful unto death. He was here. And he says to the three, he says, remain here and watch with me. He's calling Peter and James and John to spiritual vigilance. He says, watch with me. Like a, like a guard in a tower. We drive by the prisons and we see those giant concrete stems and a, and a platform on top behind those windows. Those are guard towers. And in the ancient times they would have those in the cities where you would stand guard. And your job was to be aware of any 
intruders that would come into the city. We've all seen bubbles before. I think. Listen, this is important. Listen, we got to stand guard. Jesus was calling his closest three. Watch with me. Have a 360 degree view. You've got to watch. I'm calling you to spiritual vigilance. And notice Jesus is not, he's not just telling them to watch. He says, watch with me. I'm watching too. I have spiritual vigilance. And then what does he do? Verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face. He says, this is how, you may keep watch by having your eyes on the horizon if you're guarding the city, but if you have spiritual vigilance and you're keeping watch, you get down on your face and you pray. And that's what Jesus did. Note also what he was praying. Verse 39, and going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but as you will. So what was Jesus praying? Jesus was praying. He was requesting to avoid the torment. But he was accepting it if it had to be. And he was willing to endure it. That's a good model prayer for us. It's, it's not wrong to ask to avoid it. But I'm going to accept it if it's not your will. And I'm going to endure it. So that was his prayer. And then look at verse 40. After some time, he comes back to his disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So, you could not watch with me one hour. Poor Peter. Why does he call Peter out by name? Peter's like the big brother. He's like the oldest son of all the disciples. You know, if I come into the room, and all my boys are doing something wrong, Caleb's usually the first one I'm going to call out. You're older, Peter. Uh, Caleb, you know better. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here, I think. He had that kind of relationship with Peter. They're all sleeping, but he comes up to Peter and says, Peter? So he's woke. Peter wakes up to the voice of Jesus saying, So, you could not watch with me for one hour. You know, in, in the ancient times, there was, there was the, the, the night watch. It was broken into three shifts, four hours each. And Jesus said, you couldn't even last the first hour. I'm sure on those night shifts, there were many a soldier that fell asleep in the middle of their shift. But probably few that fell asleep in the first hour. Surely you can make it to hour two, or hour three, or hour four. Peter couldn't even make it through the first hour. And as we think about the, the imagery of a night watchman and being spiritually vigilant, I think we can... We can recognize that the night watch had some distinct challenges that a watchman during the day wouldn't have. For a night watchman, first of all, he's battling himself. Naturally, this is the time that he's usually asleep. And so he's battling his own tendency to be uh, recalcitrant, to be uh, relaxed, to be unaware. He's got to battle that. Secondly, the enemy has a distinct advantage at night. Because he comes in hidden. You're not going to see him on the horizon. You're only going to see him when they're right there. So that's another disadvantage. And then that leads to the third disadvantage is your response time is much shorter. You don't have as much time to respond when the, when the trouble is there. You have to be always ready. You can't take a break. 
And then the fourth uh, difficulty with the night shift is then you've got to rouse everyone else from their sleep. Everyone else is sound asleep. And think of all the spiritual correlations here with the end times. We have the temptation to relax. We're not aware of what the danger necessarily is. It'll be upon us before we know it. And we have to call others to action. And they're not even watching. And Jesus says to Peter, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? And then he gives a second prayer request. He says, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So now we have a second prayer request. First was, you know what? I don't want to go through the, the, uh, the torment, but if I must, I will endure it. The second prayer request is, keep me from temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he goes back, and Jesus prays a second time. My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. Notice he's praying it again and again. He's got to reinforce this for himself. Because this is a threshold he doesn't want to cross. And again, verse 43, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then, in verse 45, he comes to his disciples and he says to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So now, the second time, Peter, uh, Peter isn't even woken up. The third time, Jesus wakes him up and said, You're going to have to sleep later. You can't do it right now because I'm about to be betrayed. I wonder. I wonder how long. Uh, this haunted Peter. I wonder how long he thought, oh, God, if only I had been awake, I could have seen it coming. I could have warned Jesus. He could have ran off. I wonder how long this haunted Peter before he realized, no, this was inevitable. This was in the works since the creation of the world. Nothing I could have done would have altered this, but still it would have haunted him. I wonder how much he would have uh, how much sleep you would have lost just thinking, oh man, if I hadn't bragged so much, maybe I would have been more prepared. And then the tragedy of even thinking, this wasn't even his greatest fall that night. But as I look at this scene in the garden, we see two people trying to pray, Jesus and Peter. And I wonder, what is it that distinguishes these two models of prayer from each other? How is it that Jesus got the results he got and Peter got the results that he got? Remember, they're in the olive press. Here's a, here's a little illustration I learned up in uh, Lafayette at that counseling center. Let me ask you a question. All right, when I do this, why does the water fall out? Well, why does water come out? Anyone know? Huh? Because it's being shook? Because it's being squeezed? Let me ask you again. Why does water come out? Why doesn't coffee come out? Why doesn't Coke come out? Why doesn't chocolate milk come out? Why? Because it's the water that's in the bottle, right? And so too, it's what was in Jesus during his time of pressing that caused him to react in prayer. 
And what we see that Jesus had specifically that Peter didn't seem to have at that time. Jesus had communion with the Father. Close, intimate communion. Walking in step. Doing His will, obedient to the Father. So when the pressing came, Jesus had nowhere to go but to the Father. And when you spend time in prayer, you are having direct communion with God. I have learned over these last few months, sometimes far more valuable than whatever answer you can get from the prayer is simply the communion you have with God in the process of praying. Jesus had communion with the Father. Jesus had the indwelling of the Spirit. Peter didn't have this yet. You have it. So when you're pressed, you've got the advantage that Peter did not have. You have the Holy Spirit within you calling out, groaning in words that you cannot utter. You have the Spirit inside you longing, calling out, Abba, Father. Peter didn't have that at this time. Jesus also had an acute uh, sense of his purpose. He knew what his mission was. Do you know what your mission is? He was here to glorify God. He was here to make disciples. He was here to form the church. He had communion with the Father. He had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, unquenched, fully engaged, sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You can't go about ignoring the Holy Spirit all week long and then call out the last moment of prayer. You're not going to be in sync with Him. Jesus had, Jesus had an acute sense of His purpose. And also Jesus had an awareness of the danger that he was in. And Peter didn't. Peter's coming off a holiday. Peter's coming out, out of you know, the Seder meal. And then they went out to the garden. They started to sing. And they were singing hymns. And then Jesus went away. The night was winding down as far as Peter was concerned. But Jesus knew the danger that he was in. And you need to be aware of the danger that you are in as well. And the role that prayer has in that. Remember what Peter said? He said, Satan is like a lion. In the Old Testament, it says, sin is waiting at the door. Satan wants to separate you from your faith. Sin is, wait, is waiting to destroy your walk with Christ. When we think about the dangers that we're in spiritually, and the defenses that we have, think about Ephesians chapter 6, and the, the armor of God, and, and you know it says, says stand firm, having done all to stand. We've got the helmet, the breastplate, and all that. But how does it end? It ends with being alert with prayer. Praying all prayer. All the time. All prayer. What does that mean? All prayer means your prayers aren't going to... There's a variety of prayers. And they're not all going to sound the same, the same. You have penitent prayer. Where you're repenting. Sorrowful prayer, you're coming before, before the Lord broken over your sin. You have prayer of adoration, where you're just you're just enjoying who God is and you're describing that joy to Him. You have prayers of thanksgiving. You have prayers of praise. You have requests. You have intercessory prayer. You pray for the whole the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. All kinds of prayers. I can't even list all of them. 
And if you're not even aware of the variety of prayer, you're going to be in danger when the pressing comes. You need to be a people of prayer. Jesus was a person of prayer. Have you been sleeping? Like Peter? The end times are near. That stone is rolling closer. The danger is imminent. Your purpose has never been more critical than now. Are you awake? Or are you asleep? Jesus was asleep. Peter was asleep, and I think it registered with him. After his failure, he realized, I don't ever want to make that mistake again. And as he was passing away from this life, he looked to his children, his spiritual children, and said, I don't want you to make the same mistake I made. And now he's saying the same thing to you and I right now in this passage. He said, don't make that same mistake. Don't get lackadaisical. Don't forget to pray. And so he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, I think Peter recognized that disobedience can disarm your prayers. He talked about that earlier in his first epistle, where he's telling husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers won't be hindered. So, husbands, if you're not living in an understanding way with your wife, you are handicapping your prayer. You're hindering your prayer life. And so that's why Peter, I think, couples together what, how you behave, how you think, and how you pray. Another event that could have formed Peter's opinion on the matter occurred shortly before the scene that we see right here in Matthew. If you just kind of are looking at, um, at, the, at the headings in your Bible, and you turn back a page, you see Jesus talks about uh, the lesson of the fig tree. It talks about the coming of the Son of Man. This all took place right before that garden event. And, and maybe if I can just ask you to turn one more time to the, the book of Luke, chapter 21. We see another version of that same speech that Jesus gave at the exact same time. It's just this is from Luke's perspective now. But we see the same thing. We see the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 25, we see the lesson of the fig tree in verse 29. But we see in verse 34, Peter is hearing Jesus say these words. And I think when he heard these words and then he experienced what he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, that rang through his memory for the rest of his life. Verse 34, Jesus says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he says in verse 34, watch yourselves. And then he says, in verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying. This is the same lesson that Peter is about ready to fail. And notice what he's saying. He's saying, you need to be on watch because you can't let this come upon you like a trap. He says, the day is coming. And notice it says, it's coming to all who are on the earth. He's saying, your obligation is, make sure it doesn't come upon you like a trap. In 1 Thessalonians, it says... 
that, that no one knows the day or the hour because they're in the darkness, but you are of the light. You do know. You are aware. You're not ignorant. And so that's, this is the time that we're in now. This is our obligation to be aware and to be ready for the end times as they approach, as they draw near and near. We need to watch ourselves so that it doesn't come upon us like a trap. We need to pray. This is a third prayer request now. We saw the first prayer request Jesus had. I want to avoid the suffering if possible, but if I must, I will endure it. The second prayer request, I don't want to fall into temptation. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And now this third prayer request, we see it in verse 36. Pray that you may have the strength to escape all the things that are going to take place. The strength to escape that trap. And all that comes with it, and he describes it as being weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this world. Dissipation. Honestly, literally, that's the word of a, of a, a hangover. And then drunkenness, and then the cares of this world. Spiritually speaking, you know what? When you're drunk, that's kind of fun. But you'll lose a lot of your own uh, facilities when that happens. You're, you put yourself in danger when that happens. The drunkenness. Don't do it. He says, don't, enjoy, don't get drunk off sin because you're putting yourself in danger. And then it comes with the consequences of dissipation or a hangover. Spiritually, you're going to be groggy and unable to perceive what is necessary around you. But then that third warning is just don't be weighed down with the cares of... Notice what it says. It doesn't say the cares of the world. It says the cares of this life. We got, we got more life coming. Better life, deeper life, eternal life. And we can't be weighed down with the cares of this life. And so, we pray. We watch. We stand guard. We pray that we will have the strength to escape. To me, that says that my behavior affects my perception of the end times. Whether I'm in a trap or whether I'm escaping, it depends on how I behave. If I have the strength to pray, endure, and walk righteously, or if I get caught in the trap and I end up in spiritual drunkenness. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Whatever may come between Christ's return and this present moment, whatever may come, you will not stand. You will not have the strength to escape without prayer. You cannot endure without watchful prayer. So I close this sermon with the words of Christ. Listen carefully. Take heed. Don't neglect what he's telling you as he told his disciples. Stay awake at all times. Pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. As our worship team comes forward, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, rare is the man or woman who prays as much as they ought. Lord, if ever there was a time that we need to be a people of prayer, it is now. Father, I, I just invite your spirit to, to be a bar in every person's soul here. That your spirit would not give us peace until we come to you in prayer. Until our our prayer lives are expanded and maturing until we pray like Jesus prayed rather than sleeping like Peter slept. 
Father, I pray that you would prepare us for the end times. Whatever the timing of that is, whatever that's going to look like, whatever we may disagree on, we all agree on this, Lord. We need to be in prayer. We need to be watchful. We need to be vigilant. We need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And so, Father, right now, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And, Lord, what we sing to you, this is our prayer. What we sing to you, this is our confession. What we sing to you, this is our reliance on you. We pray this in Jesus' name.